0: Here we are, Sunday evening on Conference Sunday, and I did not get to watch conference. I will be able to watch the reruns and the videos as they post them, and then I I certainly do plan on making videos on the conference talks. Welcome to the Backyard Professor live session, where we are discussing all kinds of topics as they either directly relate to Mormonism or tangentially or to our own spirituality, which again probably will bring in some aspects of Mormonism. So, Mark Crispin, you are the first here. Way to go! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, baby. Ah, boy, be here and or be square. I, uh, I've, I've had a delightful day in studying uh, videos, books. Science articles, various reviews of books, etc. And uh, it is an incredibly interesting thing to recognize a dawning reality that is occurring that perhaps we are aware of or not, but we are living in a new day. Now, the crazy thing is with the astonishing scientifically supported wonderful world communications that we have information is proceeding at a blitzkriegs pace um we can't keep up with it it is electrifying i've reviewed i've been reviewing through at least 8 books today and every one of them are pretty much 2020 on And they are showing that a new approach has begun to occur. And our definitions, our understanding of various things just within this last 10 years has changed so dramatically that we can no longer maintain our understanding of just 10 years ago about various different groups of people, about Various different philosophical themes, religious themes, science themes. Now, there has been a misunderstanding come up, and I want to hopefully correct that. Hey, Barbara Westhoff, good to see you. Um, and, and someone asked me from my morning session this morning, how come you're dissing on scientists? I'm not dissing on scientists. I am showing other scientists who are concerned about the state of science today, at least in the United States. Now, I have been focusing, because this is where I live, in the United States attitude and approach to science versus religion or science versus Mormonism, etc. Apparently, elsewhere in the rest of the world, and I'm uninformed in this, and I need to inform myself better, but I just haven't. Uh, Apparently the problems with science is not occurring like they are here in this country. And uh, we are so politically inept with our political correctness that none of our politicians are very effective anymore. And this is an exceedingly dangerous thing that we Americans have to begin to correct by beginning first to vote when the voting options come up. Unfortunately, we're giving two really weak, Uh, runners into politics, no matter whether it's on the city council, the city, county, state, or national level. Uh, It just does not seem like there's anything coming up. So I I don't talk about politics here. Uh, I'm just saying the political situation that has been forced into science is seriously dangerous and it's it's quite unfortunate so tonight what i want to do and i i re-listened to my podcast this morning Uh, i've noticed when there's a particular subject that i really do have a vested interest in i really emphasize stuff (laughs) <laughs> and i I'm, I'm trying to be more and more natural so this is kind of a personal uh quirk of mine that i've got to uh overcome and just talk naturally instead of trying to emphasize everything because if i overemphasize everything then nothing means anything right so anyway i'll work on that um <laughs> hey tim Rathbone, welcome good to see, alisa gayleen good to see you doug vincent how you doing so we're we're all coming in, Thank you. Um, this subject of science is a tricky one because people think that it is such a sacred cow that you cannot find anything wrong with it, and you're not supposed to and you're not supposed to critique it. But that's the antithesis of science. That's dogma. And we don't want science to become a dogma. Science never has been a dogma until in my lifetime, which is really amazing. Um, I I am quite stunned the more I read the history of the relationship of science and religion and all that. The dogmatic aspects, the scientistic view that has come out within the last 20 years is absolutely not in the spirit of science in any manner. Science is never... Supposed to worry about popularity or consensus appeal. And yet, so many physicists now are saying, well, I mean, my idea has been published and it's been cited 312 times, and there's 10,000 other scientists who agree with me. So obviously, my idea must be right. That is not science, man. Um, And and yet this is what we're seeing more and more and more scientists do. They put on YouTube videos and stuff. And if if they have a million views or whatever, (laughs) uh, they think they're teaching the truth. That's a very dangerous delusion. That's what I would call the science delusion in contrast to Dawkins God delusion. And we are experiencing that more and more and more in all areas of science, which is very dangerous. So I'm concerned about that. And so, yeah, I'm going to emphasize that somewhat off and on. Uh, There are, Uh, ways to correct this and it is not the ways that many evolutionary scientists are now using of boycotting other publications if someone comes up with an intelligent design idea or if someone comes up with a new theory of cellular uh Splitting or or new information about chemical compositions in life compounds or whatever, a new cosmological theory or whatever, to squelch and suppress those other views instead of test them. That is not science. That becomes dogma. And now science is being called a religion by other scientists, and they hate doing that, but they're saying you're acting like it's a religion, and it's time to knock it off and pull back. So the outsiders, the John Q. public, if you see people say, well, atheism is just a religion. Atheism is not a religion. It's a non-belief, but they're acting like it's their religion. The way they treat it and the way they promote it and the way they down and denigrate everybody else. That's what religion does. If atheism starts acting like religion, it is because it's becoming a religion. Just so you understand, that's not me saying this. That's others, scientists in the field. Science has become a dogma. Well, science is just the secular religion. If you don't like that, and I don't, then we need to be very careful about just accepting the newest science popularizer book because, hey, it's a cool author, he's funny, and he's intriguing. Intriguing is not a criteria for scientific fact. Like uh, one of my new heroes, Sabine Hassenfelder, has very crisply noted, as as has John Lennox, the mathematician for decades at MIT, very prominent scholar and scientist and mathematician. They both said, just because a scientist says something doesn't mean that science. We, we, they have great authority, that's true. I mean, nobody had greater popular appeal than Stephen Hawking. And yet tonight, I'm going to share some very, very disturbing, very incorrect philosophy that led him because he did not understand the philosophy, it led him to conclusions that have confused a whole generation of people. And what do you do? You remove the mistakes. That means you have to reassess materials over and over again. This is where we're at right now. Science is finding a much more difficult time getting funding without money We don't progress. That's the way it is. Unfortunately, because of the way science has been forced on us, just like they complain that religion is forced on us, now that their personal ideals and and views are being forced on us as the only true science and everyone else is ignorant if you don't accept our view, uh, I I have an unfortunate... Fortunate example of that from uh, Krauss tonight in one of his debates that I'll talk to you about. This has to stop. We have to find a way. It's serious. It really is serious because it will affect our children and grandchildren's lives and our great grandchildren's lives. This isn't going to go away overnight, but we do need to begin to correct the misinformation with truer, more accurate information. We need to correct misunderstood relationships into a better understanding of actual relationships when things are working together and when they are not, etc. We've become too divided. We've come. We become too politicized. And unfortunately, I'm not going to correct that tonight necessarily. I am going to show you some problematic areas of some very important cosmological claims that are fundamentally Faults from Stephen Hawking and Lawrence Krauss, not because they weren't good scientists. I'm not pointing this out because I have become anti-science or that I hate Lawrence Krauss and Stephen Hawking. I do not. That has not see that's the, that's the kind of stupid crap that people will throw at you when you go to correct false impressions. Because the scientists, I have horrible news for them and for anybody else who worships them, they are not God. And so they do make mistakes they have, and those mistakes can be costly. So with that said, again, I'm I'm overdoing this, but I have to because it's really important. Hey, Patty Cake. How are you? Uh, Patty Cake's here, Mark Crispin. Good to see you. Alisa. M-G-L 2022, uh, because it's a geriatrics prophet ship in Mormonism, M-G-L. That's just the way it is. They're is. They're just kind of silly. Sabine Hassenfelder also has now written a brand new book, just out this month, 2022, Existential Physics. I want to lead off with her because of something very important she says uh, there is a very interesting interpretation here that will set the tone for the night, which is crucially incredibly interesting. Page 26. In the beginning, superstrings created higher dimensional membranes. Well, that's one story I've been told. But there are many others. Some physicists believe the universe started off with a bang, others think it was a bounce, and yet again others bet on bubbles. Some say that everything began with a network. Some like the idea that it was a collision of sorts, or even a timeless phase of absolute silence or a gas of superstrings, or a five-dimensional black hole, a five-dimensional black hole, or a new force of nature. In the end, it doesn't matter. The outcome is the same. Us. In a universe that looks like the one we see. (laughs) Yeah, that it doesn't matter which story you believe is a big warning sign. Now it starts getting a little bit more serious. If this were science, we should have data to tell us which hypothesis is right, or at least an idea for obtaining the necessary data. But it's highly questionable that the data required to falsify any of these origin myths can be obtained, ever. These stories reach back in time so far that the data is too sparse for astrophysicists to distinguish one story and tell from another. And so this impasse might be impossible to overcome. For all we know, the beginning of our universe may remain hidden from us forever. The problem is, more and more th- Theories which are ending up being ad hoc excuses for our not knowing and not being able to say, I don't know. These new theories are cropping up and being presented as real science. And you need to believe them and quit believing everybody else's old wives' tale and fairy tales. In other words, it's becoming politicized with absolutely no evidence. And this is not. A good state for science to be in, but that's what's happening. Let's talk about inflation. I don't mean economic inflation; I mean cosmological inflation. For a minute, starting on page thirty-one, Hoffen, Hoffen, Hosenfelder—boy, her last name just doesn't want to sink in my brain—says this according to the theory of inflation. Now, the universe was created from quantum fluctuations of a field called the inflaton. And this is a real scientific theory, an inflaton. Now, the word field here just means that unlike a particle, it permeates both space and time. In other words, it's everywhere. So it's called a field. Emergence from quantum fluctuations means that this creation can happen even in a vacuum. Uh, The universe starts with a vacuum, and all of a sudden, there's a bubble with the inflation field in it, and that bubble keeps expanding. The inflation field causes the universe to undergo a phase of exponentially fast expansion, the inflation that gives the theory its name. Physicists then postulate that the inflation field decays into the particles that we now can see today in our universe. And from there on, everything continues according to the concordance model. That's the cosmological model, very similar to the standard model of subatomic particle physics. We have no evidence for the existence of the inflation field or for the idea that today's particles are produced in its decay. Some physicists have claimed that inflation theory makes predictions that may be falsified by up. Coming observations. However, you can always choose the properties of the inflation field so they match whatever we will observe. And that's a real serious problem. This means the hypothesis has no explanatory power. The reason inflation is popular with physicists is that it's believed to simplify the initial conditions of the universe. But leaving aside that this claim has been contested, This simplification comes at the cost of complicating the evolution equation. So that the inflation field gives rise to a universe where previously there was only vacuum is on occasion interpreted as creation ex nihilo. That is creation out of nothing. In the physics, we're not talking religion, we're talking the science. So. As for example, in physicist Lawrence Krauss's book, A Universe from Nothing, a quantum vacuum, however, is not nothing. And yet Krauss says he can prove, and he has proven in his book, using today's most sophisticated physics, that the universe came out of nothing, the quantum vacuum. I I mean, the logic here is amateur at best. Lawrence Krauss is just not presenting a coherent argument, and yet he ridicules everyone else who thinks differently. And I've got evidence of that, which is so unfortunate. The quantum vacuum is definitely something, and it actually has very specific mathematical properties. You mean Lawrence Krauss doesn't recognize this? I mean, I would be shocked if he didn't, but he imagines, he pretends, he doesn't say anything about it in his book. Also, in the common version of inflation theory, space and time existed before the creation of the universe. So it is clearly not creation ex nihilo. So my first thought after reading this wonderful paragraph on page 32 is what Laplace told Napoleon when, when Napoleon asked him, Well, sir, I've read your book and I don't see any place for God in it. Well, I'm going to say to Krauss the same response that Laplace told Napoleon when, when Krauss says the universe came from nothing. I have no need of that hypothesis. Because Krauss presents no evidence, and in fact, his grand conclusion directly contradicts his intention entire book. That's the state of science in cosmology by one of the truly great astrophysicists. In other words, we're in trouble. Really? Now I want to get to, I want to share with you. There is a YouTube debate. This is the title. krauss Meyer, Lamarue. The debate is on what's behind it all, uh, God, science, and the universe. This was streamed six years ago. You can look it up on YouTube. The unique thing about this debate, there were several things that happened in the debate. Some were, most of them were unfortunate. Number one, Krauss got up there and he acted like a complete ass. He just completely insulted Stephen C. Meyer over and over and over again. It was actually not amusing. Now, of course, he apparently stacked the audience with a whole bunch of his followers and fans so that they could laugh and catcall while Krauss blatantly, directly, ad hominem, attacked and mocked his opponent. And I have some of the materials here. You'll see this, unfortunately, in the video. I was deeply disappointed with Krauss. I will never read another thing that man writes for that reason alone. And I know I'm being illogical. I don't give a damn. If Krauss has to act like a bully schoolboy in a schoolyard, then I have no interest in what he says. Besides, I have another very excellent mathematician Sabine, who says his whole premise and conclusion to his book is a contradiction. So Krauss obviously does not have reality and truth, and yet he'll mock everyone else. So the man he mocked was a man named Stephen C. Meyer. I've received this book this week, The Return of the God Hypothesis. He describes this issue. Unfortunately, during the debate, when it came to Meyer's turn to talk about it, Uh, He ended up with a migraine, and you'll see this on the video. And so the debate did not go off as planned. Meyer was not able to give his full presentation with the intense and solid information he said he had prepared. Krauss, in the meantime, blustered and bluffed and farted the whole time through with his mouth, insulting everything Meyer was about, and it was positively embarrassing. If this is what science produces, we need to make a correction here. It doesn't matter how goddamn smart Krauss loves to brag about he, his, himself. He didn't show any intelligence at all that night, which is so unfortunate. The organizers of the forum that this debate took place, and this is it, this is in his prologue, in Meyer's prologue, as, called it What's Behind It All, God, Science, and the Universe. Professor Krauss, then of Arizona State University, and I were a logical match to discuss this question from opposing points of view. Indeed, he and I had debated twice before. You can also see that on YouTube. And I had often debated other scientific atheists during the preceding decade. Krauss, who spoke first, had a reputation not only as an accomplished physicist, which he is. This is what makes this so unfortunate. He genuinely is an accomplished physicist, but also as a bold and outspoken controversialist, which has become unacceptable in scientific discourse. And if it hasn't, then we, the public, need to start screaming our heads off that it is unacceptable. It produced no light, just heat. The whole damn debate. It was dis. If I'd paid to be that debate, I would have said thanks to this idiot pointing to Krauss, I would have demanded my money back. That's how bad it was. Really seriously, you have to watch the debate to see if I'm kidding. I was horrified in some respects. And he has a talent for explaining scientific ideas to popular audiences. He is also well known for his provocative thesis that quantum physics can explain how the universe came into being from nothing. Instead, he began by declaring the topic of the forum Unworthy of reflection and by characterizing me as unworthy of engagement. And he really did say this just blunt. I was so embarrassed for him. What a twit. Indeed, he began the debate indulging in nearly 10 minutes of what his boisterous supporters clearly regarded as deliciously personal invective denouncing both me and, by extension, the organizers of the forum. He has no respect and, therefore, he gets none. That's how this works, Mr. Kraus. If you appear on stage with someone talking about these ideas, it gives the impression that the ideas are worth debating or that the person is worth debating, Professor Krauss declared. In this case, neither is true. What an asshole. I mean, that's uncalled for. And that was his opening comment. It it just pissed me off. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Stephen Meyer. He is an intelligent design proponent. That much is crystal clear from reading him. I ran across him in another YouTube video I had watched. Someone had mentioned him and they said, he's really good. And I said, all right, well, let's check him out you know? So I watched one of his, uh, interviews and he's got like 50 of them on YouTube. He's got about a hundred of them on YouTube. So I watched one and I said, oh, that was kind of interesting. So I heard he had several debates. He had talked about a couple of them. So I looked up those debates on YouTube and I watched the first one and I said, all right, well, let's watch this. Let's watch this Chemical evolutionist, Trouts, the intelligent designer scientist. Uh, Meyer held his own. In fact, I came across thinking he did way better than I ever expected him to. Hmm. So I watched another one of his debates and. In my opinion, he won the night. I'm going, wait a minute, these aren't aren't Mickey Mouse people he's debating. That was a pretty serious, intense debate. And it seemed to me like Meyer had the better argument based on the evidence. Wow. Now, I have read books like this, Intelligent Design Creationism and Its Critics, and this one is by Robert T. Pinnock, where they trounce the intelligent design scholars and their ideas. This was in 2002. I read this book and I thought, okay, well, intelligent design will never show up. Well, like I say, today's a new day. And I always like looking, I always like looking at all ideas and all views. So we're in a new age, 2022. Stephen Meyer wasn't around when Pennock did his research. And then I've got several other books against intelligent design. So I watched Stephen Meyer trying to figure out how in the hell is he going to put intelligent design even in a debate and not come out with egg on his face? Well, the second interview he did really good, and he was quite articulate, and his knowledge blew me away. The third debate, the fourth debate, the fifth debate. And I'm going, damn, this guy is really knowledgeable. He knows everything about the cosmology issues. He knows everything about the chemistry and origin of life issues. He is very, very knowledgeable about evolution. He knows all about consciousness studies This guy is really smart, and it shocked me. So I thought, someone out there can defeat him. So I watched about eight, nine, ten major-sponsored, two-and-a-half to three-hour-long debates where both sides present their best evidence and refute the contentions against their claim. Stephen Meyer really impressed me. So I have purchased his books. I'm willing to let the man present his case, and I will share some of the information with you guys. What intelligent design has been characterized And the emphasis of intelligent design back in 2000 to 2010 is old information. There's a new interpretation out. Stephen Meyer presents that. We're not talking Michael Behe stuff where Ken Miller destroyed Michael Behe. Yes, I've got that stuff too. I have that. Darwin's Black Box. Yes, I've got that. I, that's Michael Behe's. And yes, I have... Uh, yes, I have... Uh, what's his nose? Where is it? Where is it? Oh, man, don't tell me. I can't find it now. Anyway, Ken Miller's book uh, on, on uh, Darwin, Finding Darwin's God, where Ken Miller completely trounced the intelligent design ideas... Well, now there's new evidence coming out. Astonishingly enough, that now I think there's going to be another reassessment. I took to task 10 years ago, I trounced ID. I was furious with it. I made a video. So I am I, not sure where it's at. I made a video and I wrote some papers on it because I was so angry with the ridiculous way that these early with Philip Johnson and those guys, these early intelligent design people were sneaking in religion into the schoolhouse and the Dover trial stopped that. Okay. So I told the intelligent design community, none of them watched me. I am virtually a nobody. Nobody cares whether I even exist. It doesn't matter. But I told them publicly anyway I said, listen, you guys, you need to pull your heads out of the mud. And if you have scientific evidence, if you want to be science then for the love of God be science. Quit masquerading as science and trying to sneak in this stupid biblical creationism crap. Now, if you want to claim you're a religion, I have no problem with you. None whatsoever. It's all good. Intelligent design as religion is mark. Go start a church and become multi billionaires. Everybody else does because religion is just bullshit these days. It's all about the money. Just look at the Mormon Church, hundred plus billion dollars in capital, and they don't only give. They only barely give five million dollars to the to the people experiencing a famine. So, if you want to be a religion, great. But if you're gonna to claim to be science, then damn you, be science. That was my critique. And I'll be go to hell. In the last 20 years, since Robert T. Pennock did his truly comprehensive analysis of intelligent design and blew them out of the water, in the last 20 years, A gentleman named Stephen Meyer has arisen. He's gotten through his PhD program. He's written four very, what I consider to be, very interesting looking books, which I will carefully peruse and read because for the first time, it looks for all the world to me like intelligent design has stopped the masquerading and they have actually found some areas where they believe there's evidence for an intelligent designer, which astounds me. But Stephen Meyer astounds me even more because he's making his case. Let me share with you his view of Lawrence Krauss and his nonsense philosophical case against a creator imagining that he has established science proves the universe came from nothing and it did not. Let me share this with you. This is incredible. What does scientific evidence, and this is on page three, okay? What does the scientific evidence imply about the existence of God? Or as the organizers of the forum put it, what is behind it all? Now, he had a migraine during the debate, and he could not continue very well. So he has written the book so that he could express what he was going to put into the debate. And you'll see that if you watch the video. If you don't watch the video, you lose them out. It was spectacular. Krauss answers that question with an emphatic, nothing. Nothing is behind it all. Nothing at all. Nothing whatsoever. And Or at least nothing but the laws of physics. Though he denounces philosophy as a vacuous enterprise. And this is what, this is the downfall of today's scientists, in my opinion. Uh, And I will share some more information on Hawking as well, and uh, Krauss and Dawkins. They are superb scientists. There is no question, no one questions that either. It's not being anti-science to say, dude, you need to take basic philosophy and you need to begin understanding basic logic because Krauss, it's eluded you, obviously. And other scientists, Sabine Hoff instead for one, has shown you plain as day, your thesis is idiotically contradictory. He denounces philosophy as a vacuous enterprise. He publicly advocates a philosophy that scholars call scientific materialism, an atheistic worldview affirmed by those who claim that science undermines belief in God. And then he goes through and he describes scientific materialism, basically atoms in the void. That's all there is. That's the old Democritus, the ancient Greek from way back when, hundreds of years before Christ made that same claim. This is what scientific materialists claim. There is nothing except particles, particles, space, and time. It's all physical. It's all natural. That's their view, okay? In a nutshell. And and that is. Uh, And it's just like when Neil deGrasse Tyson rebooted Carl Sagan's famous TV series, Cosmos. The first thing that Neil deGrasse Tyson said is, echoing, Carl Sagan's philosophy is the cosmos is all that is or ever was or ever will be. That's how it is. And Meyer acknowledges, he says, the new atheists and other science popularizers have explained the basis of their skepticism about the existence of God with admirable clarity. And they really have, according to Dawkins and others. The evidence of design in living organisms long provided the best reason to believe in the existence of God because it appealed to publicly accessible scientific evidence. But since Darwin, Dawkins insists, scientists have known that there is no evidence of actual design, only the illusion or the appearance of design in life. And according to Dawkins and many other neo-Darwinian biologists, the evolutionary mechanism of mutation and natural selection has the power to mimic a designing intelligence without itself being designed or guided in any way. And since random mutation and natural selection, what Dawkins calls the blind watchmaker, and that's a good one, Dawkins. I've got that one too, the blind watchmaker. Great book. It was one of those that I thought helped me be a satisfied atheist. And now come to think of it, its logic is idiotic. Sorry, but that's the way it is. And I've got evidence for that. I wasn't smart enough when I read that to to really see how bad his logic was. Not only that, but now his evidences are truly outdated, which is really remarkable. Remember, remember, we're talking science here. Science. And this book was published in 1987. I promise nobody accepts all of the chemistry information from 1987 as still being the same compared to today. There have been mountain loads of new information and evidence changing our understanding of chemistry. Among all cosmology. I mean, this was the era of Stephen Hawking. Surely our knowledge of the cosmos changed, which it did, et cetera. So, you know, we've moved on. That was the old day. Now's a new day. Well. Since random mutation and natural selection, what Dawkins calls the blind watchmaker mechanism, can explain away all appearances of design in life, it follows that belief in the designing intelligence at work in the history of life is completely unnecessary. That's Dawkins' point of view, right? Here was my note when I first read this. So Dawkins would say that if it looks like a duck, smells like a duck, walks like a duck, flies like a duck, quacks like a duck, breeds like a duck, and bleeds like a duck. It's not really a duck. It just appears to be. That's a really silly philosophy. And yet that's Dawkins. That's amazing, isn't it? So, here is something else that Stephen Meyer learned in his debate. That was fascinating, really fascinating. Now, I'm not saying intelligent design is true simply because I'm presenting Stephen Meyer's evidences, because honestly, I don't know that. Yet, if it is supposed to be known to be true, I'm simply presenting the ideas from a man who from his YouTube debates and interviews, and based on what I've read in this one book of his, has seriously impressed me. And there are world-class Galanter, Mark Galanter. There are serious people who used to be atheists and evolutionists, who because of Stephen Meyer has switched sides due to the evidence. And it is the scientific evidence that is causing so many scientists to now argue against neo-Darwinianism. And this information is not getting into the public eye. Jerry Coyne is not sharing it. Richard Dawkins is not sharing it. Bill Nye, the science guy on TV, is not sharing the internal serious discussions and problems that thousands of scientists are having concerning evolution. Now the popularizers don't want us to know that. So they're trying to paint a rosy, glorious picture. They're like the Mormon church publishing their bullshit in the Ensign magazine. Oh, everything's fine with Mormonism. There's no problems at all. And in the meantime, secretly they're going on rescue missions to the youth in Finland and over in Boise, Idaho and all, because so many people are so disenchanted with Mormonism. There's, thousands who are now becoming disenchanted with the orthodox interpretation of evolution. But we aren't being told that. Stephen Meyer is telling us because he is experiencing it firsthand through debates, videos, interviews, publishing, and he is the director of the Discovery Institute in Seattle. Uh, You ought to look into their, I'm looking at their website and reading several of their articles. By the way, this book got incredible reviews from serious scholars, atheists, and biologists. This is the real McCoy. If the reviews are correct, I will be finding out within the next couple of months when I review his materials. Another unexpected benefit of participating in the debate occurred completely out of view of the audience. As I prepared for the night in the two weeks leading up to this discussion with Krauss, I studied Krauss's proposed explanation for the origin of the universe. I also pored over a key technical paper and book written by the Russian phys- physicist Alexander Velenkin whose ideas Krauss had popularized in his book, A Universe from Nothing. I was stunned by what I found. Krauss used the work of Vilenkin, in effect, to refute what is called the cosmological or the first cause argument for the existence of God. Now, this argument posits God as the cause of the beginning of the material universe. As I reflected on what Belenken wrote, however, I concluded that Krauss completely missed the real important part of Belenken's work, which arguably implied the need for a pre-existing mind. And he says, see chapters 17 through 19, which I read this afternoon. It's exquisite. I'll put it that way. Over the preceding years, I had noticed a similar pattern in the writings of other scientific materialists as they responded to arguments for intelligent design in both physics and biology. As I show in later chapters of this book, the allegedly strongest counter-arguments against the theory of intelligent design often inadvertently seem to strengthen rather than to weaken the case for design. For example, attempts to explain the origin of what's called the fine-tuning of the universe by invoking a multiverse, inevitably required invoking prior unexplained fine-tuning. Interesting. Attempts to explain the origin of the information necessary to produce new forms of life, invariably either required prior unexplained information or it involved simulations that required the intelligent guidance of a programmer or a biochemist or an engineer as a condition of their success. This common responses to the argument for intelligent design in physics and biology typically begged the question as to the origin of prior indicators of design and consequently strengthened those arguments. I now discovered that a similar problem attended claims to have explained the origin of the universe from nothing properly interpreted. Physics used this way only seemed to reinforce the conclusion of the cosmological argument, and Krauss apparently is entirely unaware of it because he is so philosophically uninformed, which is mind-boggling, because he really is a good cosmologist. But he really needs to upgrade his philosophy. Yeah, so... Let's see the detailed reason why Krauss's argument in his book, The Universe from Nothing, is fatally flawed. And it's such a simple philosophical thing that it blew me away. The amazing thing is, Stephen Hawking also fell into this philosophical problem. He was an outstanding mathematician, physician, and scientist. He just didn't grasp philosophy. And it led him to brutal, fatal contradictions in his conclusions. And that's why this is so important. So let's look at this. Quantum cosmology can't seem puzzling and paradoxical, to put it mildly. A few years ago, I was on the radio with host Dennis Prager, who in the course of our conversation, Prager had interviewed Krauss earlier. The subject of their conversation was Krauss's book, A Universe from Nothing. And so Dr. Krauss was explaining to Prager how he believes the universe could emerge from nothing. And so, of course, Prager questioned him about the notion of getting something from nothing. And Krauss told him this. He said, well, the word nothing means a lot of different things to people. (laughs) I'm, I'm sorry. That's. Wow. That's when I gave up. Prager said, when he later recounted the exchange in our interview. So as I prepared for my debate with Krauss, I considered the version of quantum cosmology that Krauss described in his book. Now, we have a couple of mathematically worked out quantum cosmologies. Krauss did not discuss both of those. The one cosmology was popularized by Stephen Hawking and Hartle. It's called the Hawking-Hartle model of quantum cosmology. But there's also been another parallel proposal for quantum cosmology on the work of Alexander Vilenkin, and it is this one that Krauss used in his book. Okay? So, and this is the same Russian physicist who helped to prove the bord guth vilenkin theorem, Vilenkin presupposed that the universe began from a spatial singularity of zero volume and then quantum tunneled into a space of a specific finite volume where it could then expand in an inflationary way. More on quantum tunneling to come. That's another topic. In Vilenkin's model, the probability of this tunneling transition is determined by the universal wave function. In a universe from nothing, Krauss adopted Vilenkin's idea. There he argued that the laws of physics explained how the universe could have emerged from nothing and that those laws which he seemed to define as part of nothing, also show that nothing is unstable. Interestingly, in 2014, and that's not that long ago, just eight years ago, Hawking echoed this claim in a book titled The Grand Design. I also have it. It's over there somewhere. I've got all of Hawking's books. He's fun to read. And he co-authored that with Leonard Latamow. They wrote, Because there is a law such as gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. Spontaneous creation is the reason there is something rather than nothing. It's why the universe exists. It's why we exist. Lest anyone miss the metaphysical implications of this view of cosmology, Hawking made them explicit. It's not necessary to invoke God to light the blue touch paper and set the universe going. In his book, Krauss developed this same perspective. So, when I first read Krauss's book, I discovered that the lion's share of his discussion attempted to describe how material particles in the universe emerged from pre existing energy rich fields that existed in pre existing space. This is Lawrence Krauss. This space and energy presumably arose from the singularity at the Big Bang. Okay, so, and this is in the book Return of the God Hypothesis, brand new 2020 book for those of you who just got in. So near the end of this discussion, Krauss, clearly sensitive to the objection that neither space nor energy qualified as genuine nothing, he acknowledged that he had not yet established his main claim. So this is a good thing. That's good. But then in a short chapter near the end of the book, he attempted to prove the thesis of his book that the laws of physics could explain how the universe itself arose from literally nothing. He did so with the cursory description of Alexander Vilenkin's work in quantum cosmology. I found Krauss's discussion of quantum cosmology intellectually unsatisfying. Nevertheless, his discussion of Vilenkin's work spurred me to track down Vilenkin's books and articles and learn how Vilenkin interpreted the quantum cosmology. That's something I also will do. I mean, Stephen Meyer reminds me of me. This is what I do. You want proof? Look behind me at all my damn books I've wasted all my money on. (laughs) My money and my life. It's a blast to learn. I love it. So wouldn't have it any other way. He wrote his philosophically sensitive book that is Vilenkin and it's called Many Worlds in One. That's another one I'm going to buy soon. What I found in Belenken's work surprised me, Meyer says. In his use of quantum cosmology, Belenken was clearly attempting to model the origin of the universe as a consequence of a deeper physical law or theory. But he exhibited a much more profound sense of the difficulty of this endeavor than either Krauss or Hawking did. He also showed a keen sense of the paradoxical, even the contradictory aspects of invoking. He had to invoke a mathematical equation developed in the human mind as a cause of the universe. My reading of the Lincoln led me to conclude that quantum cosmology had not explained the origin of the universe in purely physical or material terms. Instead, although he likely would not agree, it seemed clear to me that to the extent that quantum cosmology did accurately describe the origin and the early state of the universe, it had several unexpected theistic implications. Now, let's look at the laws of physics and the universe. This is what the cosmologists, unfortunately, many, many apparent evolutionists, again, unfortunately, are not comprehending. And it leads them into seriously. Fatally flawed conclusions that they're telling us in the public materials that they're producing for the public. So we as the public, we need to sit up and start paying closer attention to what the popularizers are saying. And here is why. It's not to discourage us from learning science. Just be careful much more careful than we've been, truly. And here is why. Proponents of quantum quantum cosmology frequently claim the laws of physics explain the origin of the universe. For example, Hawking asserts this. He says, Because there is a law such as gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. And then Krauss says it this way, The laws themselves require our universe to come into existence, to develop and evolve. When Krauss and Hawking say the laws of nature or a law such as gravity explains the origin of the universe, they are referring to the whole mathematical superstructure of quantum cosmology, the universal wave function, the Wheeler-DeWitt equation, and current ideas about quantum gravity. They also assume that the laws of physics cause or explain specific events, including the origin of the universe. The claim that the laws of physics cause events to occur sounds obviously true to many scientists because we hear it so often and we're trained to think of the laws of nature as the ultimate explanatory principles in nature. Well, there's a downside to this. This idea conceals an imprecision in thought and makes what philosophers and logicians call a category mistake and here's what that is. Do you see why? Let's think of an illustration, and this is so wonderful how he does this. This is excellent. If one billiard ball of some given mass bashes into another billiard ball, the law of conservation of momentum accurately describes the interaction. It will even allow us to make predictions about the change in velocity of the second ball. If we want, if we know the masses of the two balls and the velocity of the first ball as required by the equation describing momentum exchange, physicists write the law of momentum conservation as follows: M1B1 plus M1 plus M2V2 equals M1B prime one plus m2b prime 2. That's the mathematical equation. The, The physics equation, I should say. Nevertheless, the equation describing the interaction, the law of conservation of momentum, does not cause the second ball to move. The cause of the movement of the second ball is the movement of the first ball. You see how basic this is? The cause of the second ball's movement is an antecedent event. The prior movement of the first ball coming into contact with the second ball. The law simply describes the interaction. A similar but even deeper confusion attends Krauss and Hawking's claims about the law of gravity. Expressed as a mathematical equation, the law of gravity does not cause material objects or space and energy to come into existence. Instead, it describes how material objects interact with each other and with space once they already exist. The law does not cause gravitational motion, nor does the law have the causal power to create a gravitational field, or matter, or energy, or time, or space. The laws of physics describe the interaction of things, matter and energy, that already exist within space and time. This confusion running throughout Krauss's work brought me back to an idea that I had critiqued years before in my PhD thesis. There I showed that causes and scientific laws are not the same things. Causes are typical particular events or sequences of events that precede other events, and they meet specific logical and contextual criteria laws by contrast laws describe general relationships between different types of events or variables sometimes laws describe antecedent events that do cause other events other times they describe non-causal relationships between different events or variables That is, relationships where one event is necessary condition, but not a cause of some outcome, for example, or relationships involving correlation, not causation. The laws of physics represent our descriptions of nature. That's all they are. It's our descriptions of nature. Descriptions in themselves. Do not cause things to happen. Admittedly, however, the antecedent material conditions described by some laws of physics do cause other events, as in the case of the first billiard ball hitting the second one. So one might ask couldn't quantum cosmology include a law that specifies some material antecedent event? as the cause of the origin of the universe? Couldn't the universal wave function and or the Wheeler-DeWitt equation conceived as a proto-law of quantum gravity now, couldn't that specify a material antecedent cause for the origin of matter and space and time and energy? The answer is no. Instead, this potential objection to the above argument actually underscores why quantum cosmology does not provide a causal explanation for the biggest event in the history of the universe, its origin. Recall that the universal wave function merely describes possible universes with different possible gravitational fields. Okay, so these possible universes represent outcomes or potential observations or effects, universes that could come into existence. The universal wave function just describes the superposition of all the universes with different spatial geometries and configurations of mass, energy, that could exist without specifying any which one of those universes as opposed to all of the others come into existence. How could it? Here's a key here. Before matter, space, time, and energy even came into being, none of those things existed. So, in both main models of quantum cosmology, the outcomes described by psi, that is, the wave function, the universal wave function, this arises from an initial temporal singularity of zero spatial volume. Zero. Quantum cosmology presupposes this singularity but it does not propose a physical cause or explanation for the origin of the universal wave function. And it also doesn't provide a physical cause or explanation of the possible universes that may emerge out of the singularity. So the law describing momentum exchange in the billiard ball example did not caused the second billiard ball to move when it was contacted by the first billiard ball. Instead, the movement of the first billiard ball caused that. In the case of quantum cosmology, prior to the law or the mathematical function of psi, which punitively explains the origin of the physical universe, there are No antecedent billiard balls. There are no physical particles. There are no energy fields, not even in time. Psi, the universal wave function, merely describes the possible universes with different possible gravitational fields that could arise from a singularity. Before Psi, No physical universe. Even if, as some physicists interpret, the universal wave function psi describes already existing universes in superposition, there is no actual physical universe yet. Now, since the Wheeler-DeWitt equation has to be solved in order to generate a universal wave function one could argue that the equation itself represents a causal antecedent to the different possible outcomes which are described by that universal wave function. Nevertheless, both the Wheeler-DeWitt equation and the curvature-matter pairings in superspace represent purely mathematical realities or physical Possibilities, not physical realities. Indeed, superspace itself constitutes an immaterial, timeless, spaceless, and infinite realm of mathematical possibilities. Yet, these mathematically possible universes, as well as the presupposed singularity, which also exists as a point in super space, none of this has any physical existence. And even if they did exist, they would not pre exist our universe as potential causal antecedents, since both of our universe and those other possible universes reside as possibilities in the same timeless mathematical space of possibilities, which we call superspace. So the purely mathematical character of quantum cosmology, even if conceived as a proto-law of quantum gravity, renders it incapable of specifying any material antecedent as a physical cause of the origin of the universe. Now, I'm sorry that this is so damn technical. He seriously is simplifying it, (laughs) I know. But here's the point. The universal wave function is what Krauss claims existed when the universe came from nothing. And that's absolutely impossible. (laughs) That is completely incoherent. So did Hawking. Astonishingly enough, Hawking made the same claim. Wow. It's amazing how difficult this material can be, even for physicists. But when we step back and take our time and learn this quantum materials stuff, and we learn about the mathematical relationships to possible realities, we learn more about the singularity at the very beginning, etc. The fact that the universe now has really good evidence for having a beginning, then we begin to recognize that those cosmologists who have a religious argument against God, they mess up. Hawking did. Dawkins does in the realm of biology, which Stephen Meyer has written a book on. Darwin's Doubt, which I also possess. I haven't read it, but I will. And now Cosmology with Lawrence Krauss and Stephen Hawking. It's a stu- and in the chemistry of the living cell. James Torr, the world's greatest nanotech Biologist. He owns 227 patents in nanotechnology. He is understood and known to be the world's greatest nanotechnology scientist. He has produced astonishing applications in nanotechnology that help improve our world. Well, he demonstrates the serious impossibility of life to arise from a warm little pond in a messy chemical soup. He says that is fundamentally impossible. If you get a chance, you need to look up James Tour on the YouTube. He is a Christian. Actually, he's a Jew who believes in Jesus Christ. And he says so. Don't let that put you off. This man is raving genius. He is awesome astonishingly knowledgeable, and he will show you step by step why life cannot arise out of the chemical soup. It's breathtaking to see him. James Tour, T-O-U-R. Look him up if you think I'm kidding. Phenomenal man. Absolutely incredible. These themes... Are The reason I'm bringing these up is because the conclusions based on sloppy philosophy thinking and illogical premises and thus misunderstanding how this can lead to that without contradiction is always messed up in Krauss and Hawking. And that's sad. That's really amazing and interesting that that happens. And I I was going to get to, uh, I'm running out of time. There's another story about Isaac Newton that I wanted to get to that, oh, it's really long. I'll save that for another time if you're interested. You're probably not. I'm sure science is boring the hell out of all of us. And it's too bad because it's the most exciting topic going. But we love to hear criticisms against Mormonism and all that. And I'm not doing that very well tonight. And so, I'm not sharing gossip, I'm sharing knowledge, and so that's the way it goes. John Lennox, God and Stephen Hawking, a very powerful little punch book uh, demonstrating that Stephen Hawking really did not get it. Magnificent mathematician, full credit given. Magnificent physicist, full credit given. His His philosophical naivete led him to make conclusions that just simply do not hold water and i mean cosmological grand conclusions let's let's look at james lennox the grand design opens with a list of the big questions which is really wonderful hawking was willing to explore these areas which was sensational Yes, this is what we need more of is serious inquiries. But now we are recognizing because of the severe problems of our cosmologists and biologists and chemists with their logic that we need to begin to integrate a better logical basis for arriving at realistic conclusions, not phony ones, because you hate God because as a child, your mommy didn't let you suck your thumb for whatever reason. And so you're angry at him. That's how Richard Dawkins and Klaus uh, and Krauss come across. That may not be true, but they really need to change that tone if we're going to begin to try to take him seriously. Hawking ended up being the same way, just as bad as Vic Stanger did. Darn it, it's too bad. How can we understand the world in which we find ourselves? You know, did the universe need a creator? Where did all of this stuff come from, etc.? And so... These questions emanating from such a famous person, what this does is it excites our imagination with the anticipation of hearing a world-class scientist give us his idea. This has got to be good. It's coming from Stephen Hawking, man, and he knows everything. That is why I literally purchased every book the man wrote. Seriously, because I wanted to get into this. So let's take a look. If that is what we expect, a great mind exploring the philosophical questions and we get finally really good answers based on science, then wow, we are in for a shock. Because in his very next words, Hawking dismisses philosophy. Referring to his list of questions, he says, traditionally these are questions for philosophy, but philosophy is dead. It has not kept up with modern developments in science, particularly in physics. As a result, scientists have become the bearers of the torch of discovery in our quest for knowledge. (laughs) He's daydreaming because his philosophy just destroys his whole book. And that's so unfortunate. And. Let's see what Lennox says. Well, apart from the unwarranted hubris of this dismissal of philosophy, a discipline well represented and respected at his own University of Cambridge, incidentally, it constitutes rather disturbing evidence that at least one scientist, Hawking himself, has not even kept up with philosophy sufficiently to realize that he himself is engaging in philosophy throughout his book. Now, there's irony. Yeah. The very first thing I notice is that Hawking's statement about philosophy is itself a philosophical statement. It is manifestly not a statement of science. It is a metaphysical statement about science. Therefore, his statement that philosophy is dead contradicts itself. It is a classic example of logical incoherence. That's too bad he fell into that. Hawking's attitude to philosophy contrasts remarkably with that of Albert Einstein in a letter supporting the teaching of history and philosophy of science to physicists. Now let's turn to Einstein. I fully agree with you about the significance of educational value of methodology, as well as history and philosophy of science. So many people today, and even professional scientists, seem to me like someone who has seen thousands of trees, but has never seen a forest. The knowledge of the historic and the philosophical background, Einstein says, gives that kind of independence from prejudices of his generation from which most scientists are suffering. This independence created by philosophical insight is, in my opinion, the mark of distinction between a mere artisan or specialist and a real seeker after truth. Quite the contrast, isn't it? Furthermore, Hawking's statement that scientists have become the bearers of the torch of discovery smacks of scientism, the view that science is the only way to truth. It is a conviction characteristic of that movement in secular thought known as the new atheism, although its ideas are mostly only new in the aggressive way they are presented rather than in their intellectual content. For any scientist and let alone a science superstar, to his philosophy on the one hand, and then at once to adopt a self-contradictory philosophical stance, on the other hand, is not the wisest thing to do. I should say not, especially at the beginning of a book that is designed to be convincing. Nobel laureate Sir Peter Medawar pointed out this danger long ago in his excellent book, Advice to a Young Scientist, which ought to be compulsory reading for all scientists. There is no quicker way for a scientist to bring discredit upon himself and upon his profession than roundly to declare, particularly when no declaration of any kind is called for, that science knows— Or soon we'll know the answers to all questions worth asking and that questions which do not admit a scientific answer are in some way non-questions or pseudo-questions that only simpletons ask and only the gullible profess to be able to answer. Metawar goes on to say that the existence of a limit to science is, however, made clear by its inability to answer childlike elementary questions having to do with first and last things. Questions as, how did everything begin? Or what are we all here for? Or what is the point of living, etc.? The next point I want to bring is a matter of logic, a self-creating universe. And here again, This is Hawking. And of course, Krauss lamely followed after Hawking and used the same philosophical naivete in coming to his conclusion, which was directly contradictory of his entire book. I mean, wow. And this stuff sells by the millions and people read it. And because it's from a scientist, they believe it. They believe this is what science is when it's only the personal scientist's own interpretation and opinion. It's amazing. I mean, I'm getting, I, I, I was pissed as hell that I was brainwashed by Mormonism and religion. Now I'm finding out, and I'm getting pissed as hell, that science is also brainwashing us with their view that's not even accurate either. I mean, for Pete's sake, everything I thought I knew was true is all a brainwash in every single discipline? You know, life gets a little bit difficult, and I can see why there's anger boiling up in our country when we're discovering shit like this. I'm starting to comprehend it because it's starting to rile me up too, and it should be. So let's keep looking. One of the main conclusions of his book, The Grand Design, is, and here's what he says, because there is a law of gravity, The universe can and will create itself out of nothing. Now, we saw Stephen C. Meyer completely obliterate that silly tissue of silliness. That's so philosophically wrong, it's amazing. Here is Lennox's interpretation, which is also extremely powerful. First, a general comment on this key expression of Hawking's Belief. Notice, this is not science. You can't say science teaches because there is a law of gravity, the universe can and will create itself out of nothing. That is Stephen Hawking's naive, contradictory philosophy, not science. So let's see how Lennox exposes this. Philosophy is dead, according to Hawking. Okay, well, however, one of the main tasks of philosophy is to train people in the art of definition, of logical analysis, and argument. Is Hawking really telling us that this is also dead? Surely not. However, it would seem that some of his arguments could have profited from a little more attention to the matter of clarity of definition and logical analysis. We shall start with the statement just quoted. The first question to ask is, what does Hawking mean when he uses the word nothing in his statement, the universe can and will create itself out of nothing? What we notice is the assumption in the first part of the statement, because there is a law of gravity. Hawking assumes, therefore, that a law of gravity exists. One presumes also that he believes gravity itself exists for the simple reason that an abstract mathematical law on its own would be vacuous with nothing to describe a point to which we shall return. The main issue for now, however, is that gravity or a law of gravity is not nothing. If he is using that word in usual, philosophic correct sense of non-being, if he is not, then he should have told us that. We don't know how he understands nothing, right? That's the point. He's being too vague. It's not fair on the reader. Well, on the face of it, Hawking appears, therefore, to be simultaneously asserting that the universe is created from nothing and from something. Not a very promising start. Indeed, one might add for good measure the fact that when physicists talk about nothing, they often appear to mean a quantum vacuum, which is manifestly not nothing. In fact, Hawking is surely alluding to this when he writes, we are a product of quantum fluctuations in the very early universe. Later on in the book, he sets the total energy of empty space to zero by subtracting the actual value, and then he seems to proceed on the assumption that the energy actually is zero when he asks this question. If the total energy of the universe must always remain zero and it costs energy to create a body, how can a whole universe be created from nothing? This seems, at least to me, a rather dubious move. Could all of of this be just a little bit much ado about nothing? (laughs) Clever Shakespeareanism, huh? That reminds you of Radio Free Mormon, doesn't it? The situation does not improve, and this is so unfortunate, but it does not improve when we move on to the logic of the second part of Hawking's statement. The universe can and will create itself from nothing. So this assertion is self-contradictory. Let's look at the logic. It's very basic. If we say X creates Y, we presuppose the existence of X in the first place in order to bring Y into existence. Okay, that's not difficult, right? That is a simple matter of understanding what the words X creates Y mean. So, therefore, if we say X creates X, we imply that we are presupposing the existence of X in order to account for the existence of X. This is obviously self-contradictory and thus logically incoherent, even if we put X equal to the universe. To presuppose the existence of the universe To account for its own existence sounds like something out of Alice in Wonderland, not science. It is seldom that one finds in a single statement two distinct levels of contradiction, but Hawking appears to have constructed such a statement. He says the universe comes from a nothing that turns out to be a something, self-contradiction number one, and then he says the universe creates itself. Self contradiction number two. But that is not all. His notion, his notion that a law of nature, that is gravity, a law of gravity explains the existence of the universe is also self contradictory. Since a law of nature by definition surely depends on its own existence, of the prior existence of the nature it purports to describe. So, the main conclusion of the book. Turns out not simply to be a self-contradiction, which would be disastrous enough, but to be a triple self-contradiction. Philosophers just might be tempted to comment, so that is what comes out of saying philosophy is dead. Yeah, philosophy is not dead. Stephen Hawking is ignorant of it. And that caused serious problems. His whole book is completely contradictory. This is not science, folks. This is Stephen Hawking trying to demonstrate that there is no need of a creator. And because of his atheistic bias, he presents the most asinine contradictory cosmology and Lawrence Krauss follows after him. And nobody's buying this except the public. That's why we have to stay vigilant and wake up. We have to learn how to read more critically. And that comes with a huge help of reading all sides of a position. You don't have to accept all sides, but you need to be aware of them. Otherwise, you might illegally believe that what Stephen Hawking and Lawrence Krauss has taught is actually science when it's nothing of the sort. Yet they were great scientists. This is not anti-science. This is not anti-scientist. This is, let's find out who's doing proper science and who's not. And in their books on cosmology and the origin of the universe, with their atheist bias against a creator, Lawrence Krauss and Stephen Hawking, unfortunately have fallen into egregious errors of contradiction and it completely refutes their cosmological concepts. In other words, science still has no answers on the origin of the universe from material causes. That's where we're at, folks. So, and and it's interesting because in this concept, Hawking is echoing the language of Oxford chemist Peter Atkins, also a well-known atheist, who believes that space-time generates its own dust in the process of its own self-assembly. Atkins dubs this the cosmic bootstrap principle, referring to the self contradictory idea of a person lifting himself by pulling on his own bootstraps. His Oxford colleague, Philosopher of religion Keith Ward is surely right to say that Atkins' view of the universe is as blatantly self contradictory as the name he gives to it, pointing out that what is logically impossible for a cause to bring about some effect without already being in existence, Ward then concludes between the hypothesis of God and the hypothesis of a cosmic bootstrap, there is no competition we were always right to think that persons or universes who seek to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps are forever doomed to failure. So what all of this goes to show is that nonsense remains nonsense even when talked by world-famous scientists. What serves to obscure the illogical illogicality of such statements is the fact that they are made by scientists. And the general public, not surprisingly, assumes that they are statements of science and takes them on authority. That is why it is important to point out that they are not statements of science, and any statement, whether made by a scientist or not, should be open to logical analysis. Immense prestige and authority does not compensate for faulty logic. And George Ellis which I showed you this morning talking to Sabine Hoffenstetter said there are now particle physicists in our science who say our ideas are so good that they shouldn't be tested anymore they should just be believed wow that's not a statement of science either that's sheer bias that's ego speaking so the whole point is this issue of God and science is not over. Richard Dawkins is a false prophet. He's a decent biologist, but he sucks at predicting. Christopher Hitchens did not get his wish. Religion still is in existence, and people love it, and they are enjoying it, and it is enriching their lives. Science still exists, it is still powerful, it is still useful, it still blesses our lives. But if we allow it to slip into mere wish-fulfilling hope, it's going to fail because of its basis of having to have evidence of observations Isaac Newton got it right, and he was an intelligent designer scientist, but he got it right. He said, we need to explore the world, because we have brains that are fallible, and so we have to cross-check ourselves. We have to be very careful, because we love to lie to ourselves, and unfortunately— There's many who love to lie to all others, and we need to cross-check that with actual observations of how is the world. We don't worry about how God should have made the world or how the world should function, etc. Let's go see how it functions. That would be the scientific approach. Observation has to be a part of that as much as possible. Not this lame idea that philosophy is dead and therefore laws of physics cause the universe to exist from nothing. That's pure bunk. That's philosophical naivety and just wrong. It's sad that such great scientists and physicists and cosmologists actually believe that and teach it when they should know better. Lawrence Krauss, of course, refuses to read any criticisms against him, and he refuses to believe or change his tune. He is as bad as David Bednar of the Mormon Apostles. He's almost as bad as Dallin Oaks of the Mormon Twelve Apostles, because he's the same damn way. Everything Dallin Oaks says is, is Scripture. Bednar even said, I am Scripture. Well, Krauss is acting the same damn way. I am science. What I say is true because it's the way it is. And yet he completely messes up on the grandest subject of all in a blatant contradiction. So we know he can't be right. So what is right? We don't know yet, right? That is why I keep studying. there you go you know because it's fun, it's delightful it makes you feel fulfilled as a seeker it, it gives you goals in life. I have a goal to restudy this issue. I gave the atheists their due. I read about 76, 78, 80, however many atheist books over there. I read them all when I was an atheist, and I absolutely studied them and learned their materials. Now I'm going to do the same thing for the other side. Here's the catch. The new day we're in really interestingly shows that it's not the religious people whose complaints are as important to pay attention to concerning the scientists and their arrogance and their blatant contradictions. It's not the religious people that are leading this charge into better preparation for real truth of the universe. It is other scientists, mathematicians, philosophers themselves. On top of that, the religious people are also speaking. I mean, you have Polkinghorne, Plantinga, You have all kinds of Christian philosophers, Jewish philosophers, Jewish scientists. This goes across the religion board. It doesn't matter. Even Mormon scientists, Stephen L. Peck's Excellent Evolving Faith. There's lots of voices out there that is saying we have to do better because of the obvious fact that we have to do better. So that's basically what I wanted to share with you tonight. And I did not go all the way through. Uh, I did not even go all the way through John C. Lennox. If you're interested in, in furthering this information, uh, let me know in the comments and I'll be glad to share more of John Lennox. He's the fabulous mathematician out of MIT and UCLA. This is not a fly-by-nighter mathematician. He's very powerful. Uh, And he tears Stephen Hawking apart. You know, none of the scientists have the last word and they're trying to convince us that they do have the last word. And unfortunately, too many people are being overawed by their authority. Just like in Mormonism, the congregation just shuts up and believes everything they're told. Well, the vast majority of Americans are in the same boat. That's because we're so overawed with authority of science because it works so well. Well, let's keep it working well, but that means we keep the same standards of excellence and not let these other scientists with idiotic personal diatribes against religion take over how science works. That's what we do not want. The ones who are proposing extra universes and extra dimensions and strings and inflation and every silly thing in their head in order to explain our universe. They propose an outside influence. Well, that's what they're bitching about the problem of intelligent design is. You can't propose an outside influence to explain the universe. And yet they turn around and hypocritically do the same damn thing but they call it science and the scientists themselves are saying nope that is not science that is not science so we gotta keep abreast of developments i will try to do my part and help out with with as many videos as i can make unless i bore you all to death there's literally virtually almost nobody here anymore so apparently um actually learning materials is much more difficult for people to want to do than listening to gossip about something or other. I'm not quite sure why that works, but we need to turn our brains on. We talk about it all the time. We bitch and moan about the Mormons turning our brains off and their brain dead, and then we don't want to actually do the hard work of turning our brains back on and using them. We've got a lot of work to do, don't we? So anyway, thanks for watching Backyard Professor videos. I shall return next weekend. I may be doing a a special Saturday session. I don't know. If not, I will do a Sunday morning, 10 o'clock, and I will do a Sunday evening, 6 p.m. for the next Backyard Professor videos. Stay tuned. In the meantime, have a great week. I appreciate all of you. I'm glad uh, you guys showed up. Thank you for all the likes. Appreciate all that. So, uh, hey, Dan Vogel, glad you showed up, brother. I'm trying to turn your comment on. He says, beware of Christian apologists. Yeah, yeah, you got to be careful of Christian apologists too. Absolutely. On the other hand, you have to understand their statements and their views, but you don't have to believe them any more than you have to believe scientists, Mormon prophets, or anybody, any woman or man off the street either. So we all have to look at everything we can and analyze it. Oh, hey, Debbie Joe. Welcome. John Robarski. You're here too. Good to see you. Doug Vincent. You're very welcome. Mo Hey, good to see you. Tim Rathbone. Hey, Geoplanet Jane. Thank you. Uh, I have not read Nature much of yet. I will start, though, because of these people that I'm reading. They're suggesting I read Nature. I will. Uh, but I am I am looking into some of those as I can. So thanks for the question. Great question. All right. Oh, Debbie, Joe, thank you. That's very kind of you. Anyway. Okay, you guys. Yeah, baby. I opened with, yeah, baby. And I'll close with, yeah, baby. <laughs> Love you guys. Appreciate you all. Hey, uh, I will see you on Wednesday night. It's going to be a good Wednesday night. If I remember right, we're going to have the author of The Method Infinite, Cheryl Bruno. You won't want to miss that Mormonism life. And uh, and then I'll see you guys next weekend sometime. All righty. Hasta la vista, baby. Fun stuff.